Today we are in a four-part in-depth series, which is a part of our Through the Bible series in the book of Acts, as we have been going verse by verse, uh, chapter by chapter, through the book of Acts. That's going to be our plan for the next several uh, months, because uh, we believe here at Calvary Vista that teaching verse by verse uh, through the Bible is the best way for us to learn. And so we've been camped out in chapter 2, looking at what the early church was devoted to. And we see in the text we're looking at today six things that they devoted themselves to. So look at verse 42 again. It says, And they continued steadfastly. Literally, and in many of the Bible translations, it reads this way, and they devoted themselves to. And that's why we've called this devoted. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. That was number one, that they were devoted to the study of the word of God and fellowship. So that was number two, that they devoted themselves to the building up of community and fellowship and sharing and being together. And then it says in the breaking of bread. This is what we're going to look at today because this was the third thing they devoted themselves to, and that was remembering the cross. And then it says, and number four, prayers. And I don't if you weren't here last week, if you didn't um, hear it, Pastor Aaron did a fantastic job in uh, teaching on prayer last week. It was outstanding. I listened to it. Um, and then it says this, then fear, and many Bible translations translate it this way, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And now all who believed were together and had all things in common. And this again was a part of their fellowship, their community that they were building. That verse 45 says, And they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. And so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God. This is number four or number five. The fifth thing they devoted themselves to was worship. That worship, praising God was a big part of their gatherings together. And then it says, and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And that was number six, that they devoted themselves to sharing Jesus. So this is what we have been camping out on the last several weeks, and we're going to continue the next few weeks. But let's pray, and then we'll dive into our time today. Lord, we thank you so much that you are the one who has built your church. And you declared that upon this rock, the declaration of who you are, Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, upon that rock, that declaration, you would build your church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And Jesus, as we are taking time here at Calvary Vista on these Sunday mornings to go through the book of Acts to consider what it means to be the church, your church, the church that you have built, the church that you are building in this broken world, I pray, Lord, that you would just um, give us some illumination and application today. In Jesus' name, amen. There were two ordinances that Jesus gave to his church, and we're actually going to be doing both of them here today. 
One of them was to baptize. And at the end of our time today, we're going to see some people get baptized as they declare their faith in Jesus. But remember, Jesus told his disciples to go into all the world, uh, preaching the gospel and making disciples of all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. So that was one, to baptize. The second was communion the Lord's Supper, to remember the cross. And it was during his last Passover meal on the night before he went to the cross that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at the account of that meal, that supper that we have for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we're going to look at this as kind of our our way to prepare our hearts today to receive of communion. So would you now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11? I was brought on staff here at Calvary Vista back in 1985. That was the first time as a youth pastor And the church at that time was about 250 adults meeting in a little building over off of Hacienda Drive. And it was during that year, actually a month after I got hired, that I met my wife Denise at a camp, a family camp that the church was doing up at Twin Peaks. And she was working up there on the mountain. And uh, we hit it off. And I don't have time to go into the whole story, but the Lord ended up leading her down here to Uh, help out in worship and she began to help me with our youth ministry and by April of the next year we were engaged and by July exactly one year after we met we were married there in 1986 and we have been married happily for 36 years and um, going strong but I have to admit I had the lamest proposal ever okay ever. There was no romantic dinner. There was no getting down on one knee. I know, it's bad. (laughs) I didn't even have a ring, all right? We were just sitting together one day, and I turned and looked at her and said, do you want to get married? (laughs) That was it. And and she looked at me, and she goes, yeah, someday. And, And then she goes, wait, are you proposing? And I go, yeah, I guess I am. I mean, it was horrible. It was horrible. I have made up for it, though, I got to tell you. But one of the reasons I didn't have a ring was I was really poor. Uh, When they brought me on staff to be the youth pastor, my salary was $700 a month, and my rent was four and a quarter. So I barely had money to eat, let alone buy an engagement ring. But our associate pastor at that time, uh, Gaylord Tolhill, and his wife, Marcia, some of you remember them, uh, they were on a trip to Hawaii, and they were walking around, and one day, um, Marcia, she got um, some gum on the bottom of her shoe. And when they got back to the hotel, she asked uh, Gaylord, hey, would you get that gum off the bottom of my sandal? And and he goes, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. Well, he forgot. Well, the next day they're walking around and and Marcia goes, did you get that gum off my shoe? And, And he goes, oh, I forgot. And she goes, well, I think I got a rock stuck in it. And she took off her sandal and there stuck in the gum was a little diamond. 
And so when they came back, knowing how poor I was, uh, Gaylord gave me that diamond because he knew I had already proposed to Denise so that I could get her a ring. And uh, we found out later it really wasn't a real diamond. It was, uh, but I got to tell you, the jeweler said it was the best cubic sicornia, I think that's what we call it, <laughs> that he had ever seen. It took three jewelers to authenticate that it wasn't real. And my wife wore that fake ring, just for how sentimental it was, for 20 years. Until it broke. (laughs) Because real diamonds don't break, all right? But, uh, well, the passage that we're looking at today has been called the diamond in the mud. Not the diamond in the gum, but the diamond in the mud. Because in verse 23, Jesus, we're given the setting. It says, on the night that Jesus would be betrayed. So this is a dark night. Things are about to get very, very dark. But in the darkness, we are given this brilliant illumination of this new thing that God was doing. I'm going to divide this section into two parts. We're going to look at, first of all, in verses 23 through 26, the purpose of the Lord's table. And then we'll look at, in verses verses 27 through 32, the preparation of the Lord's table. So let's look at, first of all, the purpose of the Lord's table, verse 23. For I received, this is Paul speaking, from the Lord, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper saying, this is the cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know, it is not a coincidence that Jesus initiated the Lord's Supper, or what we often call communion, during the Passover meal. You see, God had instituted Passover for the Jewish people to remember their deliverance from Egypt. After 400 years of being in bondage, God set them free as the angel of death, and this is where the name came, passes over the nation of Egypt where the Israelites were in bondage. He passes over and the firstborn in every single house that did not have the blood of a Passover lamb spread on the doorpost of their house, that firstborn would be, would die. But it was only the firstborn of the Israelites who had the blood of that lamb sprinkled on the door that they, their firstborn was saved. But it was on that night as the firstborn all over Egypt died, including the firstborn in Pharaoh's house, that, that Pharaoh said, okay, I've had enough. You guys can leave. In fact, get out of here. 
And throughout her history, Israel celebrated this meal in remembrance of the supreme deliverance that God gave them from Egypt and then leading them into the promised land. In fact, it is today still the holiest of Jewish feasts. But on this night, Jesus transformed the Passover meal into a celebration of the infinitely greater deliverance. The the deliverance that would come, that he would bring, of which the Passover was only a picture of. You see, the Passover celebrated this temporary physical deliverance of the Old Covenant. But the Lord's Supper celebrates the permanent and spiritual deliverance of the New Covenant. It's interesting that they celebrated Passover only once a year, the Jewish people did. But the early church, starting with what we're seeing, they celebrated this daily. Every single day, they they wanted to remember, to celebrate the deliverance that Jesus brought to them. There's three things I want us to note about this, uh, the purpose of this celebration. We're going to look, first of all, uh, about the doctrine, the doctrine that's involved in this. And then we'll look at the directive that Jesus gave. And then finally, we'll look at the duration. Let's start with the doctrine. There's two components to it, the bread and the cup. He begins with the bread there in verse 24. It says that he took the bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. The bread that had represented the Exodus now came to represent the body of Jesus the Messiah. And we must understand, to put ourselves in the Jewish mindset, that that the body represented, when they talked about the body, it represented the whole person, not just the physical body. It represented everything about that person. And Jesus' body represented the great mystery of his incarnate life. That he had left heaven and come to this earth to to become a man. It represented in the body was his whole teaching. It was his whole ministry. It was all the works. It was all the miracles. It was like they were partaking fully of Jesus is the idea. Now it's interesting that the word broken there in verse 24 isn't in the best manuscripts of the New Testament. And I think this is significant to mention because both Moses in Exodus chapter 12 and Numbers chapter 9 and David in Psalm 34 said of the Messiah that not one of his bones would be broken. That was prophesied. And remember on the night that Jesus, on the, that Jesus was on the cross, as he's hanging there late in the afternoon, because it was the Sabbath, the Sabbath was approaching, the Roman soldiers came and began to break the legs of the two uh, prisoners that were on each side of Jesus. They wanted to speed up that death process because when you're on the cross, one of the ways, you know, you're, you're, you're nailed there and your, knee, your hands and your feet are nailed, but you press up like this to breathe. Because the way that people die on the cross is actually not from the bleeding, but it's from suffocation. They get to the point where they just no longer can push up and then they're, they, they, they just can't breathe anymore. Well, they would break their legs to speed up that process so they couldn't push up to get a breath anymore. But when they came to Jesus, they found that his legs were all, or not his legs, they found that he was already died. He was already dead. He had breathed his last. 
So they didn't break his legs. And that was a fulfillment of those prophecies. But I'll tell you this. Although none of his bones were broken, Jesus was still broken. He was thrashed. His body was literally mutilated. And I don't mean to gross you out this morning, but we we need to remember this. They took a a whip that they called a cat of nine tails. It was nine strands of leather attached to a wooden stick. And in that leather were tied in the knots of shards of glass and metal and rock. And they beat him. And they beat him. 39 lashes, they, they beat him. His back, the flesh on his back at a beating like this, this is what would happen. The flesh would begin to swell up to the point where finally one of those blows would hit the swollen back. All those like boils almost just on his back from the, from the beating, they would explode. So exploding flesh just everywhere. His back being ripped and shredded. And then they blindfolded him and they would punch him in the face, telling, hey, prophesy, who hit you? Then they took that crown of thorns, and uh, I I wish I would have brought this today. I have one of these at home. Those thorns are like this thick. They're thick, and they're sharp, and they're strong. I mean, they don't break. I mean, and they crush that upon his head to where the bleeding is just, you know, so his face is swollen. It's, 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 it's bleeding. I mean, it's just, just horrific. And then they took what would today to us look kind of like railroad spikes, and they drove those full through his hands and through his feet as they nailed him to the cross. He was so badly disfigured that this is what Isaiah wrote in verse, Isaiah 52, verse 14. But many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured that he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know that he was a man. His flesh so beaten that it didn't even look like a human being on that cross anymore. He wrote in chapter, Isaiah did in chapter 53, but he was pierced because of our rebellion and he was crushed. I like that phrase. Because of our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. So none of his bones were broken, but he was broken. So I have no problem with this, uh, the way this reads here in the text, that his body was broken for us, because he was. And it wasn't just his body that was ripped to shreds and broken, but it was even his heart. In fact, the biggest and greatest agony that Jesus experienced from the cross was the Bible says that he literally became sin for us. So all of the sin, your sin, my sin, the sin of all of the world... Every rape, the Holocaust, the the worst things that you could think about that have happened in our world's history, all of that sin, the Bible says, was laid upon him, and he literally became sin for us. And on that cross, Jesus experienced for the first time ever being separated from his heavenly Father. That's what sin does. It separates us from God. And that's why Jesus would cry from the cross, not Father, 
And did you know this is the only time in his whole earthly ministry he ever refers to God in this way? It's always Father. It was always Father. But on the cross, what does he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's interesting that later when the Roman soldier came, just to make sure that he was dead, he thrust the spear up in his side. It pierced his heart. And it says a mixture of blood and water came out. And physicians today say that 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 is the sign of somebody who died of a ruptured heart. And so Jesus says, this body, it's my body, which was given. And here is one of the greatest, most impactful phrases in all of the Bible. For you. In fact, will you just say that with me? For you. you. Now let's make it personal. Would you say this out loud? It was given, his body was given for me. For me. For each one of us. Jesus gave his body, his entire life for us. To those of us who would believe in him, he would say, I became a man for you. I suffered for you. I died for you. And this bread, which represents my body, it's my body, which was given for you. So that's the first component, the bread. And then he mentions the second component of this, the doctrine of this is the cup. Verse 25, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper saying, this is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The cup that represented the lamb's blood on the doorpost came to represent the blood of the lamb of God. Remember when Jesus was coming down into the Jordan River? Remember what John the Baptist, how he he announced him, how he introduced him? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His blood was shed for the salvation of the world. The old covenant was ratified repeatedly by the blood of animals that were offered as a covering for the sins of man. The new covenant has been ratified once and for all by the blood of Jesus Christ. That the Bible says that God was in Christ offering himself up, that God literally was offering himself up for us. And on that night, Jesus took the cup and said, this is the the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And this was significant. Because for 2,000 years, they had been celebrating the old covenant that God had established with Moses. But now Jesus was announcing that, that there was now a new covenant. Now the message of the old covenant was due. Due. Follow these commandments and you will be saved. But the problem was no one could consist, consistently keep the commandments. Our flesh was too weak. Therefore, man was doomed to spend eternity separated from God because of our sin and because of our rebellion, because of our failure to keep the commandments. In fact, Paul the Apostle would later write in the book of Galatians that that was the whole purpose of the old covenant. It was to show us. It was like a schoolmaster to teach us that we were sinners in need of a Savior, that it was kind of a setup to prepare us for the new covenant. So the message of the old covenant was do this and live, but the message of the new covenant is done. Because Jesus, when he cried from the cross, remember what he said? It is finished. 
And aren't you glad he didn't cry out, almost, halfway, or even, I did my part, now you got to do yours. Nope. He says it's finished, it's done, the price for salvation has been paid, the work of salvation has been done. And the message of the old covenant focused on the outward performance. Doing the right thing, following the commandments. Listen, the message of the new covenant is an inward work. It's an inward, it's an inside. It starts with the heart and then it affects us on the outside. In fact, listen to how Jeremiah put this as he prophesied about this new covenant that would come. In Jeremiah 31, he said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that they, I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, So Jeremiah is telling us, first of all, why there was a need for a new covenant is because Israel, who was God's wife, broke the old covenant. They they committed what we would call spiritual adultery. He continues, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, that I will put my law in their minds, and I'll get this, write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You see, the law would no longer be written on stone tablets, but now it would be written on our hearts. Why? Because it's an inward work that God is doing in the new covenant that is marked by intimacy because God says, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then Jeremiah continued, no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them says the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. This was the beauty of this new covenant no longer just a covering of sin but a complete removal because Jesus the Bible says took all of our sin and our sins which were many have now been removed that our sins which are red light scarlet when his blood is applied to them become as white as snow how glorious is that how wonderful is that so the Passover celebrated the temporary physical deliverance of the old covenant It was celebrated every single year and really daily with these perpetual sacrifices that were given. But the Lord's Supper celebrates, get this, the permanent spiritual deliverance. That it was one sacrifice. The body and the blood of Jesus given once, we're told in the book of Hebrews, for all. And we could say once and for all. In other words, it was given once for all, for all of humanity, anybody who would put their faith in Christ, but also once and for all, that there's no longer a need for any more sacrifices. I love the way Ezekiel prophesied about the new covenant. He says, and I will give you, in Ezekiel 36, a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you, and I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart, and I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. Here's what the Lord is saying. This is the beauty of the new covenant. I'm going to do a work inside of you. 
I'm going to place my spirit within you. And my spirit, he's going to empower you to be able to walk with me and follow me. He's going to, be a, he's going to empower you to do what you could not do on your own and in your flesh. And so first we have the doctrine of the Lord's Supper there seen in the bread and the cup. Now let's consider the directive. The directive is given twice. First in verse 24, he says, do this in remembrance of me. And then again in verse 25, he says, this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now listen, for the Jewish person to remember that decree, that exhortation to remember meant more than simply to bring something to mind. To just, it, did, it meant so much more than just to kind of think back and recall what happened. No, to truly remember was to go back in one's mind and try to recapture the significance of what happened. So for them, and they're doing this every single day, they're thinking about it. And some of them, they, they, they witnessed Jesus die. They saw the beating, and they're going back, and they're probably talking to one another about it, about what happened and, and what it meant. To go back and remember, to recapture Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, to relive, in essence, with him the agony of that suffering. That how he became sin and became a curse. And experience that separation from his father. And, and you know, I don't think there's anything humanly that can even, that we can fathom what that meant. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, living in perfect harmony with his father. They're as close as you can be. They're one. But suddenly in that moment, Jesus experiences a separation. You think about that. I mean, I think the closest thing that maybe we, we can experience to this is, is a death. But this was even greater than that. So they're remembering, they're reflecting upon this. Why does God want us to remember? Why does he give us twice this directive? It's because we're prone to forget. And as we're prone to forget, the cross can lose its significance to us. The early church at the very start made this a daily thing that they were to remember because the cross and the resurrection of Jesus was everything to them. So this was the directive. And then finally, we come to the duration. Look at verse 26. He says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, I want you to note, there's no frequency given here. Jesus didn't tell him to remember it daily. He just said, as often as you do, remember me. But it is a permanent feast. It's something that they were to do often. And it's more than a remembrance for our own sakes. It's also the proclamation for the world's sake. It's a testimony to the world that we're not ashamed of the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm so glad we sang today and we do sing these songs about the blood. Because it's the key. 
right? I've never, ever understood seeker-sensitive churches that would say, hey, we, we don't want to sing about the blood. We don't want to talk about sin. We don't want anybody that is unchurched to feel uncomfortable when they come here. And that's just kind of kind of gross. Guys, listen. Our faith is a bloody faith. You realize that? It's a bloody faith. It's all about the blood. And so we sing of the precious blood of Jesus Christ because all of us here who are believers in Christ, we have been blood-bought. We're blood-related. The precious blood of our, that flowed from our Savior's veins, that's what connects us. And so when we partake of the blood, we're giving worth to the importance of the blood, that there's nothing as we sing but the blood of Jesus that can save us, that can wash away our sins. But communion is also a reminder of the Lord's coming. Jesus says, I want you to do this as a proclamation of my death until I come again. It's proclaiming to the world that, hey, he is coming again. That it helps us to look forward to, to remember, hey, we're, we're, he's coming back. He's the king. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus said, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day that I drink it with you anew in my Father's kingdom. So he's gonna, we're going to share this with him when he comes back. And so in communion, we have the opportunity to realign our hopes to the future that Jesus is bringing, that he is coming again, that he is the king of kings, that he is the one who is one day going to set up his rule here on planet earth, and he's going to establish a kingdom that the Bible says will have no end, and that's our hope, amen? That's the hope that we have. So that's the purpose of the Lord's Supper. To remember back the bread and the cup and what they represent. To proclaim the Lord's death. To look forward to the reality that he's coming back again. But now I want us just briefly here to consider the preparation of the Lord's table that we see in verses 27 through 32. He says, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink the cup. Pause there for just a moment and give me your attention. He mentions this idea of partaking of communion in an unworthy manner. What does that mean? What does it mean? It means uh, that we're not giving worth to the body and the blood of Jesus. How do we do that? Well, I think one of the ways that we can do that is when communion becomes simply a ritual to us, where it isn't something that's special, where we just kind of find ourselves just kind of going through the motions, oh yeah, I've done this before. And we're not contemplating our sin that Jesus died for. We're not contemplating what Jesus did for us. That that can be an example of partaking in an unworthy manner. That's one of the ways. Another way is when we come to the table, but we've got bitterness and anger and unforgiveness 
in our heart towards somebody else. Because basically what we're saying is, Jesus, I know that you died to pay the price to forgive me of all of my sin. But I can't forgive that person who sinned against me. And I want to just say this, just because I know this can cause some people some confusion, is that forgiving someone doesn't mean reconciliation happens. Because reconciliation only happens when there's been repentance. But you have to forgive. Forgiveness, I say, takes one. It's between you and God. It's your heart. And if you don't forgive, and the devil doesn't want you to forgive, that's why he keeps bringing whatever that person did to hurt you back up into your mind on a daily basis because he wants you to live there because he knows what the Bible says is true, that those who allow a root of bitterness to to dwell up in their hearts, it's going to defile them and everybody around them. And so when we are unable, when we are, I'll put it unwilling, when we're unwilling to forgive somebody, we're not giving worth to the body of Christ. We're saying, you forgave me, but I can't forgive them. We forgive them. You know how we do that? By applying the cross. Realizing, Jesus, you paid the price for that sin that was done against me. And so, Lord, I'm going to forgive them because you paid the price for it, and I'm going to just trust that you're going to do with them whatever they need. Whatever they need. Whatever, they're yours. So having unforgiveness, bitterness in our hearts can be a way of partaking in an unworthy manner. And another way is when we're just living in rebellion against God. You know, it's coming into a setting like this, and maybe you're here today, and and, and you don't even know Jesus. You've never given your life to Jesus. You've never put your faith in the one who died on the cross and paid the price for your sins so that you could know God and have a relationship with him and have the hope of heaven. And you've said, oh, I've heard that. You know, I kind of grew up in the church, but you've never, ever really, truly followed Jesus. To partake of this without giving your heart to Jesus is to partake in an unworthy manner. Another way, though, is maybe you have professed faith in Jesus and you said, you know, you followed him at one time, but, but now you're living in rebellion and you're living in sin and you know it. You've been living in sin. You're not following Jesus at all with all of your heart and, and, and you're just, you know, living in your sinful condition. And so what you're basically saying is, Jesus, I know you died on the cross to pay the price for the sin I'm living in right now, but I'm not willing to give it up to partake of these elements that represent his body that was given and his blood that was shed is to partake in an unworthy manner. And I want you to notice that Paul gives a warning there in verse 29, for he says, he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Now, the judgment that he's talking here is not speaking of a judgment to condemnation, but a judgment of chastisement. And the Bible says, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, he chastises. And so to partake in an unworthy manner when you're living in rebellion, Paul says, don't do this. He gives a warning. Many have gotten sick. Some have even died. 
And the reason for this is in the very beginning of the early church, in fact, we're going to see this in, in chapter 5, God want, he, he was making it very clear that he wanted his people to be pure and to walk in holiness. And so in Acts chapter 5, we see a couple that lie against the Holy Spirit. And they drop dead on the spot. Now, that doesn't happen all the time. You tell a lie. I mean, can you imagine? None of us would be here, right? <laughs> but in the very beginning of the church, God was saying... I want you to know how serious this is. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying this is serious business, communion. So don't partake in an unworthy manner. Now, if you are in that place today where you maybe have never given your life to Christ or you've been, you know, you're living in rebellion right now, I would say to you, don't partake when we, in a minute, we're going to partake. But the second option is open your heart up to Jesus. Turn from your sin today. And turn to the Savior and allow Him to welcome you into the family. Allow Him, like the Father did to that prodigal son, to welcome Him back. Jesus wants to welcome you back. Maybe some of you today even want to get baptized as a declaration that, that you're going to follow Jesus with all of your heart. Well, that brings us to the final thing about the preparation, and that's the fact that there's to be examination. Look at verse, um, we see that in verse 28, that we're to examine our hearts, he says. Examine yourselves. It's what David declared in Psalm 139 when he said, Search me, O God, and know my heart, and test me, and know my anxious thoughts. And point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. So it's coming to the Lord and saying, okay, I need to examine my heart. And that's what we want to do right now. I'm going to have the worship team come back out this time. And I'm going to pray. And I want us just to to take this moment right now to examine our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you loved us enough that when we were lost in our sin and rebellion that you didn't leave us there. But you left heaven and you came to this earth to give yourself for us. That you made a way for sinners to be able to enter into relationship with God. Have our sins forgiven, our guilt removed. And we thank you, Lord, for that. And so today, Lord, right now in this moment, we, we want to remember what you did for us. We want to examine ourselves and make sure our heart is in the right place.